Let us come and hear his voice today in the word. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5. If you weren't here, or perhaps by way of reminder last week, we saw that we are entering a section where the apostle deals in these little phrases that are full of meaning, basic instructions that he would have anticipated the elders are going to build out and apply to the church. And last week we saw verse 13, we are called by the Holy Spirit, every one of us, to seek to be at peace with one another. And so we saw first what that peace means in a Christian context. And then we saw some reasons why it is so important to seek it. And then we also considered a few perspectives or mindsets that make for peace. But now we move into verse 14, and you're going to see that in verse 14, the apostle really deals with some of the practical aspects of maintaining peace in the body. So with that in mind, let's hear together the word of God. Our focus will be verse 14. I'll begin at verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity, which you have ordained from eternity, for this day, for this evening, to receive from your word and by your spirit exactly what we need, to be reminded of your patience toward us and of the opportunity in your grace, not only to be recipients, but conduits, personal givers of patience and love, and in that way to make peace in the body. We ask that you would be glorified as we give attention to your word. For in Jesus' name, God's people pray. Amen. You can imagine that if there was just one sheep all by itself out in the pasture, that In a way, it would have a lot of peace. You might expect it has peace. It has no other sheep it has to deal with at all. But the reality is that God has created sheep in such a way, as I have read at least, that they prefer to be among other sheep. When sheep are left by themselves, they are far more likely to demonstrate stress, anxiety, to manifest symptoms of panic, to shed their fleece, to show all sorts of symptoms of being discontent and unhappy. When our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, determined to call a people to himself, he did not have in his mind at all to create a people who wander isolated in the world. He is a shepherd over a flock, and that is so apparent throughout the word. It's one of the reasons why it is one of the most common of all the analogies in the Bible. If you have been created in Jesus Christ, given a new spirit, begotten for the age to come, then you have something in you that cannot be at peace, living apart, isolated from the flock. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Christians are called to submit appropriately to overseers, to elders in the church. And elders in several places are described as under-shepherds. And so it's clearly the Lord's design that every professing believer, every disciple of Christ would come under the oversight, under the crook, as it were, 
of a local church to be a part of the body. But now also, if you gather several sheep together, now you introduce certain problems that didn't exist when they were alone. Sheep do sometimes fight. They are sometimes sick and can pass their sickness to others. And even so, when you gather a bunch of sinners who need grace into a body, people at all different levels of development, people with all different proclivities and backgrounds, this is going to make at times for unrest in the church. There are going to be situations where the peace of the congregation is threatened. A certain amount of unrest in a body is symptomatic of something good happening. That's surprising. A certain amount is symptomatic of it being a place where sinners are invited to be. But we don't invite sin to be. We invite sinners, and we are seeking to grow together. And what we're going to see this evening is, this is really the relationship between verse 13 and 14. Verse 13, the call, be at peace among yourselves. It's possible to take that in isolation and to think primarily in terms of how you're going to conduct yourself as a unit, that you're willing to make peace. But verse 13 moves into verse 14, and verse 14 is all about going out into the congregation, being proactive, being practical, and ministering to people with all of their whole variety of struggles and sins. This is how God has ordained that we would maintain peace among ourselves by the whole body recognizing that we have a role to play in addressing a variety of sins and struggles and weaknesses among us. And so this is what the Holy Spirit is leading us to consider tonight. And we're going to see that in doing that, he's calling us to do it with a certain spirit, a certain mindset. The same that we saw last week, this is part of a unit, so this is not a surprise. But if we have been called by the God of peace who made peace with us, then the patience we exhibit to others has to be an overflow of what we have received. You don't find this in yourself by nature. So you have to hear that. Everything that you hear this evening is to be interpreted through an understanding that the Holy Spirit provides this in and through you. It's not going to come from yourself. Now, as we consider this passage together, we're going to look at it under two main headings. The first is going to be the particular sources of unrest that are described in this passage. Not because they are the only sources of unrest, but because they are some of the most common, some that we should be alert to and which we should not be surprised when they exist here. So they will be the particular sources of unrest. And then second, the second main heading will be practical instructions for maintaining peace. And they are very, very practical. That's what Paul is dealing with here. It's a new church, and he wants them to get off to a good start, but these things apply just as much to a church which has been around for some time. And then at the end, we'll just conclude by reflecting again on the spirit of patience that has to do with receiving the gospel ourselves. So let's begin first, look at verse 14, and consider with me some of the particular sources of unrest. These are Persons are really rather conditions of persons that tend to pose a threat to peace in the body of Christ. Verse 14 mentions three in particular. This is not at all meant to be exhaustive. If you have breathed and lived in the church for more than a week, you know that there are all kinds of circumstances that can lead to disunity 
to discord in the body of Christ. But these three, as we're going to see, are very useful because they really cover most of, if not all, the bases when you build them out and think about what they are implying here. Now, the first group is definitely the most difficult, but not impossible, to translate. Most of us here are using an English Standard Version, and that's what is in the pew, and it's an excellent translation. But occasionally, when translating from the original languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, into another language, the translators themselves have to make difficult decisions because, just like English, some Greek words can go more than one way. So our English Standard Version says, the idol. Think of idle people who are not busy doing what they ought to be doing. And the New Living Translation goes in the same way it says those who are lazy. Now, where are they getting that from? That is one of the ways this word can be translated. And it would match the context. Chapter 4, verse 11, Paul issues a rebuke to people who were not being faithful in their ordinary vocations. So that's why several translations go that way. But I know that some of you use a New American Standard Bible. Others of you are fond of the same translation I was raised with, the King James Version. And that goes a little bit different. That says, those who are unruly. Those who are unruly. Now, that would also fit the context, and it's also a legitimate translation. Because just before this, do you recall, there is a command to respect the authority of overseers in the church. So it makes sense that there would be this warning to admonish those who don't have a respect for authority and order in the church. So which one is it? By the way, I'll mention the NIV actually kind of hedges its bets, so to speak. It says, rebuke those who are lazy and unruly. But the Greek is only one word. It is just one word. The word, bear with me here, it's a negative particle, ah. Think of atheism, ah theism. So not theistic, not believing in God. Here you just have the word for not, and then the word for to respect order or to be submissive. And for that reason, it could very well be speaking of those who are idle in the context, but I'm going to tell you my position here. It can go either way. My position is Paul is speaking in an all-encompassing way. He's really talking, rebuke those who are walking in an unruly way. They're not disciplined or they're not submitting to the order of Christian life that we're called to, whether in the church, whether in the home, whether in their workplace, whether in their social life, Christ's order applies to every aspect of your life. And taken in light of the whole situation here, I'm persuaded he really has in mind disorder, period, in the most broad way. Now, it's not hard to see how those who are disorderly are a threat to the peace of the congregation. Just think about that for a moment. If you have one or more persons in the church who fall into a habit of showing disdain or disregard for the authority that God has vested in the eldership of the church, that is going to pose an issue. As others come to think, well, I guess this order doesn't actually matter, or others side with and then there's division within the church. But even outside of that, think of some of the situations that the Apostle Paul describes here in this book. People who have disorder in terms of idleness make a bad name for the church in their workplaces. 
Or you have people who are walking in sexual morality, just in the chapter before this. And the way that that rips apart not only the trust between the individuals directly involved, but in the whole congregation and outside into families. And so you can see how peace breaks down when disorder is not dealt with. He also mentions a number of other issues in the Thessalonian church. And you start to realize that where there is disorder and it's not addressed, there's going to be a breakdown of peace. That one is the easiest to understand. It's not surprising at all. It leads to a lack of peace. Then there's a second source mentioned in verse 14, a second source of unrest. And this is translated in your ESV, probably other translations. In fact, almost all English translations go the same way. The faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. Now, this word does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament, but it does occur outside of the Bible, other writings from the same time period. And there's basically no question about what is being communicated in this word. This is basically people who are experiencing deep discouragement. Deep discouragement or particularly sharp doubts about their faith. Or they are perhaps overcome with sorrow. These are the kinds of circumstances that are used to describe this. Now think about the context of 1 Thessalonians. As we've seen in a number of weeks past, Paul's writing to people who are experiencing violent persecution, the theft of their goods. Not only they themselves, but their families and their friends are in danger. And in that moment, it is not surprising that the enemy is working a wedge to get people to think, maybe it's not worth it, all of this Christian life. Or maybe it's okay to not be totally forward about what we believe and to put it down low where nobody's going to notice what we believe so that we're safe. Maybe we can compromise to a certain extent. I mentioned that in our prayer. I got a, an email this past week from a brother that I used to attend church with who's now a pastor at URC in Canada. And he wrote asking for advice if any of the other pastors could offer advice because one of his members who works for the city has been, was asked, you know, what's your shirt size? So that you can wear a shirt and participate in showing support for something that Christians are not in support of. And now this person who's only 17 years old is really being put in a hard position to be accepted, to maintain their job, all of that. Is this the hill to die on? And so you can imagine a context where the Thessalonians, some of them really feel discouraged at what they're going through. And then also, Paul mentions the deaths of several people and others in the congregation who aren't very mature in the faith, and they are wondering, what has happened to those people that I loved? Now, how does that pose a threat to peace? That one is not so obvious. And I would suggest this. Where doubt, where discouragement is not addressed appropriately, though unintentionally, those believers may end up undermining the confidence of others too. As they share their griefs, if they're not being healed and poured into, that may begin to wear on other people's confidence as well. And they may start to question how should we behave, should we compromise in certain areas, and so this is another potential area for peace to break down. 
And then the third source in verse 14 are described as the weak. The weak. Now, I think naturally, few of us want to think that we are weak. The reality is that in different categories at different times, probably all of us have matched this description or will match this description. The word is used in a whole variety of ways throughout the New Testament and in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's a common word. Most commonly, it's used to speak of actual physical sickness or disability. Jesus sends out the disciples to heal the sick. And so in this context, he is addressing the fact that you're going to have the sick among you. And that's a reality here. Those who have long-term disabilities, those who have present illness of one form or another. But then it is used fairly frequently throughout the New Testament as well for something else. The weak are those who are in a lower social or economic position. Paul speaks of women as the weaker vessel, and he doesn't mean having less dignity or value. But in many respects, they may be physically or socially disadvantaged. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 uses it of economics. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 uses it of social status, that the Lord has not called many of the great, but he is mostly called the weak of the world. And then sometimes it's used for those who are less knowledgeable or mature in the faith. Probably most famously, 1 Corinthians 8 speaks of those who are weak in terms of they are scared to partake of meat because they are fearful that maybe it was offered to an idol. Paul says, for your sake, you should not be eating of this meat in such a way that it then stumbles your brother just because you want to have it. He says you have a care for the weak, not to stumble them. And so it can be used for those who are less knowledgeable or less mature in the faith. Paul doesn't tell us here which kind of of weakness he's talking about. Again, given everything we've seen, I think it's most reasonable to take it as all-encompassing. Anyone who is relative to yourself, deficient in some way, anyone who relative to the congregation at large is seen as a dependent in some way, are the people that he has in mind. Now, how does their weakness threaten the peace of the body? Some of you automatically know. You don't need to be told because you have been dealing with this. It has already been a point of disunity in your home, in your extended family, or in the body. People who have long-standing weakness sometimes come to be looked upon as a liability, as a drain on our resources. It may not just be those who are sick, a kind of very obviously innocent weakness. Maybe we have long patience for them. But what if it's somebody who has a different kind of weakness? Maybe they are less, I don't know that Paul had this in mind, but there are those who are less socially strong. They have a hard time making their way into the life of the church. They are weak. And because they are not an easy fit, they continue to struggle. And if they are not cared for, then At some point, they feel alienated, and there's disunity. Or it can be a breakdown where people feel that those they love are not receiving the kind of care that other people ought to be receiving in the church. Acts chapter 6 presents a a notable instance of this. In Acts chapter 6, it's the passage we associate with, kind of humanly speaking, the invention of the diaconate. But it says this in verse 1. 
Now in these days, when the disciples were beginning to increase in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is, the believers who had a Greek background, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Can you imagine that in this church? If, you know, I, I used to live in Wisconsin, and for I, I've never looked to find out the reasons why, but we had a lot of Hmong people in the city that I was in, Appleton, Wisconsin. You had, like, no black people in that city, except for, like, one or two. I remember there was a, a black person at my church, but it was notable because of that. But then you had all these Hmong people. Now, imagine a church in Appleton, Wisconsin, where I was at, where you have a whole group who, by the Lord's kindness, are drawn to the gospel, and they become part of this church that has a very different culture and background. But then imagine that the deacons are taking care of the needs of their own and not of the others. And you can see how that would rapidly bring division in a church. It's all of these varieties of needs that the apostle has in mind as sources of unrest. Disorderly people, discouraged people, dependent people. The question is, what then do we do? And this is the practical part. This is where the apostle would lead us, and really the Holy Spirit would lead you. It leads us to our second main point, practical instructions for maintaining peace. Now, I notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, send away from you everybody who matches any of these descriptions. And of course, I trust none of us would say that is the solution. But I challenge you to think whether or not sometimes that has entered your heart relative to particular people. Uh, yeah, if, if they left, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> Would make it easier. And maybe you don't even dare to verbalize that because you can already sense that's not right. But I'll say it plainly. I have struggled with that. I think that the enemy wants to work that wedge into our hearts. To want the easy way out of peace in the body. But before all else, notice what it says in verse 14. Notice who is responsible. And we urge you, brothers. I know many of you by name, most of you by name. And I imagine that the Apostle Paul knew most of these brothers and sisters by name. And had he wanted to, as he does in other epistles, he could have just started listing names, like at the end of Romans. He just starts listing out names of people that he knows. He doesn't have in mind just the overseers. He has in mind the whole congregation. We urge you, brothers. And so I'll just lay it before you. I won't start naming all of your names. But I'll comfortably look you in the eye as a minister of the word and say, the Holy Spirit urges you. And if there was a mirror back there, I'd look in the mirror. The Holy Spirit is urging me as well. He's urging us to take responsibility. You have heard it said, it takes a village to raise a child. I don't know, but I can tell you it does take a church to have a peaceful congregation. It is not enough to just have one or two people in the church who are running around trying to put fires out. The way to have long-term, genuine, spiritual peace in a church is when, as a standard of character, every member understands this as part of our maturity. 
But part of your maturity is to go beyond just verse 13, desiring peace, to verse 14, doing the things we have to do to have peace. Not just wanting it with words, but wanting it with deeds. What then are we called to? Look at the first instruction. Admonish the idol. Admonish. Not ignore, not indulge sin, but also not rush to exclude or to beat up the sinner. The word admonish really means in love to issue a warning. And Matthew 18 lays out very clearly that there's a process here. It doesn't just jump to the elders. If you hear about it first, unless it's a crime and you fear for your life, the Lord, by his providence, has laid before you an opportunity. Now, there are appropriate caveats for that. I'm not going to go through them all here. But admonish the idle, admonish the unruly, the disorderly, often, painfully, that begins in our own home. And I lay it before fathers and husbands in particular. Finger points back at me. The Lord, not because we were necessarily more apt, talented, but in order to represent the relationship of Christ towards his church, has laid upon you as men the central responsibility to oversee order in your home. And by order, I do not mean like in Sound of Music where he's blowing a whistle and they all line up at the right time. Order is falling in line with Christ's desires for his people, and all of that desire boils down to love. He said all the commands can be summarized in love for God and love for your neighbor. Of course, he builds that out. You do not have sole responsibility. Of course, your spouse, if you have a spouse, does as well, and your church is involved in your lives. But order must be sought, and that means that we can't pass off or simply delegate the duty of admonishment in our homes and our friendships and otherwise. Then look at the second instruction. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. In some ways, for me, I would say that this might be the hardest. When it's really clear that someone's wrong, I think quite a few of us are comfortable admonishing. Not all of us, but quite a few of us. And as we're going to see in terms of helping the weak, in quite a lot of ways, we like helping the weak. And maybe we even like encouraging, but in some ways it's hard to do that. You think you're encouraging until somebody tells you afterward that really wasn't encouraging. You laugh, and I feel comforted. Because you're not alone, and I'm not alone in that. I remember uh, a brother, this is one of the, the daggers that you need to go into you to, to be prepared as a servant of the Lord. I remember a, a brother confided to me, this was all in seminary, that his wife had just left him. And all things considered, I think, I think he probably maybe should have seen it coming, but he felt like he didn't see it coming. And on the spot, what I should have, in retrospect, should have done was basically tell him, that is so painful. I'm sure you're in so much pain. I'm praying for you. If you want to talk, I'm here to listen. 
and then I should have taken a back seat and wait and see if the Lord gives me any kind of wisdom. But instead, I was so eager to encourage that the way I encouraged was immediately by reflecting on other people whose wives came back. His wife did not come back. I say that this is not a sermon about how to encourage the faint-hearted, but it is to say it is a duty you have in the Lord. And if you want to do it well, study. Study by first, I'm not saying go get a book, maybe get a book, but ask who in this congregation has a reputation as an encourager. I can tell you quite a few. And then go ask them for encouragement and see how they speak and what happens. But if we don't do this, then our congregation in many ways will languish. Those who are in sorrow won't actually heal. They'll just scarify. Those who have severe doubts will just learn not to talk about them until a fracture happens deep within. The third instruction, help the weak. Help the weak. Maybe this, there's not a fact of every sermon. I by no means hope for anyone to adopt that model. But if there was, for me, a kind of nugget in preparing this week, maybe it was in this section. The word help the weak here, again, English can be hard. Trust your English translations. The best thing you can do is know the whole Bible, compare the Bible to itself. But here it's, it's actually pretty hard to give one word that is clear because it's not the typical word for help. There is another word for help in Greek that is used most often. Here it's something else. Notice how it's used in other passages. Proverbs 3, verse 18, the Greek version of the Old Testament says, hold fast or cling to wisdom. It's the same term. Zephaniah 1, 6, seek the Lord. Certainly by seek, it means to go out and lay hold of, find. When Paul says here, help the weak, the Holy Spirit has in mind urgent, proactive interest in the weakness of others. Urgent, proactive interest in others. Not just, I'm I'm willing if a need arises, but this is proactive. It's seeking, it's laying hold of the weak and not pushing them away. I think about some in our church who are I don't say it in one sense to to shame you. There's an element of shame that falls on all of us here. But there are some in our church who are unable, physically unable, to gather for worship and have not been able to. It has nothing to do with COVID and all that. They've not been able to for a long time. I remember asking one of them how long it had been since they had received a visit from someone other than a pastor or one or two other people that I knew visited them. They said, I think a few years. Who are we expecting to help the weak? Who are we expecting? And I'm not saying then that, say those we, that this week, you know, 55 people call. That's not the point. I know that we're a congregation that is full of help. But it is to say to maybe broaden our net of who we think of as weak who we think of as weak, and to see if our gifts can be matched to them. What can we expect if we seek to do these things? We can expect peace. What if we don't? Then a certain amount of disunity. In what moments we have left, I want to invite you to look at verse 14 once more and to reflect on the final statement. The Holy Spirit knows us. 
And what does he say next? Verse 14, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. These are the hard cases in church life. And sometimes the source of disunity in one sense is not them, it's that they brush up against our own impatience in our homes, in our families, in ministry in the church. Be patient with them all. Now, patience is a fruit of genuine love. 1 Corinthians, the most famous passage on love in the Bible, the very first description, love is patient. Love is patient. But where does our love come from? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And it's easy to theologize that in a sense where we say, well, the reason why we first began to love and our regeneration took place was because he loved us and therefore elected us. And True, we affirm it. But on a day-to-day basis, a minute-to-minute basis, it's also true. We love out of the fullness of the sense that he does love us now. That he is being patient with us. Not he has been patient, but right now he's being patient. Who, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, who in the past 30 minutes of sermon, you know, veered away, I trust you have reasons for my own sermon veering away, but from the word into other thoughts that have comparatively no value next to the Lord's desire to sanctify you. I saw no lightning bolts. He's patient all the time, just pouring out the patience. And our eyes are so sleepy, we don't see it. But if you were to reflect on it, you'd see this. Think of the three descriptions here, the disorderly, the discouraged, the dependent, as being problem people in the church. But that's each of us. By comparison to the Lord of perfection, have you not been more disorderly than the way that others are disorderly relative to your expectations? We are disorderly, unruly, idle. And yet Psalm 64, verse 3, receive it as for you. When my iniquities prevail against me, then you atone for our transgressions. Not when I'm licking my sins, I've got them beat, but when they prevail against me, in that moment when I am crying and also kind of not crying because I feel so hardened by my sin and I'm confused. How did I fall again? When my iniquities prevail against me, then you atone for my sins. Christ did not come for the strong and the orderly. He came for the unruly and the weak, the deficient, the dependent. And that is you. And it is through a meditation on this daily, coming back to this, before you even rise up out of your bed to breathe out in prayer, I awake to a patient God. And today is going to be a patient day too. The Lord is patient with me. He's not less patient today than any other day. This helps us. Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He gently leads those that are with young. He doesn't see the pregnant lamb and be like, move it, get on. He's gentle. He sees, he understands, he's so patient. And this is how the Lord deals with us and then in turn how we become conduits to others. Hear this one last verse and we'll close in prayer. Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, 
Then, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. May that work through us. I realize one sermon doesn't, in God's providence, usually change everything for everyone, but it's part of the nourishment, part of the being brought back to the way, corrected as a flock. May we be such a flock by God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your nourishing word and the promises of the gospel. We thank you that though our feelings always change, yet your promise is true. Those who believe upon Christ, who trust in him, his sufficiency, his resurrection, and his power, we are at peace with you because you have reconciled yourself first to us. We ask, Lord, that you would please enable us to reflect your qualities. We know that you don't need us for anything, and you could carry out your mission using other people. We thank you for the privilege of being your image bearers. And we ask that you would help us to do so in this church among all your people. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.